Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that dabbles in the mystical world of cars and transport. I'm David Brown, and in this program we take a look at the latest news stories, including electric vehicle schemes from around the world. Australia offers a bit, London offers a lot. And we talk to Dr Alexa Del Bosque from Monash University about one of the most critical issues we have in transport planning, the biases we bring to our discussions about the best transport solutions. And we also talk to Nissan Australia CEO Richard Amory about his view of what having autonomous cars will really mean. And in our panel discussion with Errol Smith, we take a jovial look at stories including the cars we will remember from Roger Moore's acting experiences. Have a question or a comment, send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. You can listen to longer segments of each of the features by going to our website or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. Now, to begin the program, let's have the news. The Australian Federal Government has just announced a $395,000 grant to support the take-up of electric vehicles in Australia. The money will be used for research. Other governments around the world talk about the benefits of electric vehicles and commit significantly more funds to push technology along. For example, Transport for London, or TFL, has just committed £18 million, which is $31 million Australian dollars, for rapid charge points that power vehicles in just 30 minutes. London is aiming for 75 charging points by the end of this year, 150 by the end of 2018 and 300 by 2020. The charging points are critical to support other initiatives. From the 1st of January 2018, all new taxi licences for London will need to be zero emission capable. Competition amongst car companies should push down the price, but there is also a need for a collaborative approach. In Australia, a new body, the Electric Vehicle Council, has just been established with some car manufacturers and other stakeholders. ITS International has reported the view of Ben Howarth, Senior Policy Advisor of the Association of British Insurers, who said that local authorities in the UK could be subjected to insurance claims if an autonomous vehicle crash is deemed to have been caused by road markings that were incorrect or unreadable by the vehicle. This is not quite as all-encompassing as it might seem. Howarth expected AVs to be used in defined areas and the councils would have a view on which roads were suitable. If a road was approved for the use by AVs and an accident occurred in which some road defect, such as an obscured or worn-out white line, was deemed to have contributed, then under the proposals the insurance company would be entitled to recover the payments from the council. This might appear to be at least one way to ensure line marking is kept in good condition, but it might also make it difficult to conduct maintenance and trial new approaches. When the London congestion charge was introduced, there were exceptions for vehicles that produced lower pollution levels. Now the London City Council wants to get much tougher. London has reduced the cars that can get exceptions, and now... The Mayor of London is implementing additional charges for vehicles that don't meet the latest standard. Currently, cars pay £11.50 or nearly 20 Australian dollars to enter London's central CBD. The new charges, which will come into effect in April next year, for vehicles that do not meet the minimum standards are £12.50 for cars, vans and motorcycles and 
£100 for buses, coaches and HGVs. This means a polluting car will pay over $41 a day for the privilege to drive in inner London. London's Mayor is also looking to extend the ultra-low emission zone across Greater London to buses and heavy vehicles and then to cars as well. Society seems to have always been concerned about adapting new transport modes. The speed of trains was going to cause seizures, they said. In one state in the US, you had to stop your car and cover it whenever a horse-drawn vehicle went past. In Britain, you had to have someone walking in front of your vehicle carrying a red flag. Apparently, this was also true of bicycles, at least in some areas. The Atlantic City Lab has been running a wide-ranging series of stories on cycling. One reported that in 1897, a Louisville doctor proclaimed that women should never ride bicycles. At first, bicycles in the US were for the rich, not surprisingly, when one would cost $150 at a time when the average worker earned just $12 per week. But the price soon came down. Transport can have wider social implications than just moving people from one place to another. The same Louisville doctor was aghast to think that cycling was leading to people having conversations with other people they met on the road. A new report predicts that by 2022, 50% of new vehicles will have vehicle-to-vehicle, or V2V, technology, which enables real-time short-range communication between vehicles. The report, by Juniper Research, says that the technology, launched by Mercedes-Benz and Cadillac, will play an important role in the advance of autonomous vehicles as the annual production of self-driving cars approaches 15 million by 2025. Vehicle-to-infrastructure is also part of the future communication landscape. Along with the connectivity that is part of most new cars today, this has led to the expression V2X, or vehicle-to-everything. It is estimated that future automotive technologies, including autonomous systems, could each consume up to one terabyte of data every day. And that has been the news. How we envisage a problem leads to how we look for solutions. Public comment on transport solutions is understandably based on applied assumptions of what the problem is. That's not surprising. But this approach spills over into so-called research, which, to my mind, is often not open-minded inquiry, but rather compiling a justification for a preconceived idea. It's not aiming to discover a new way of looking at things. It's compiling information for a polemic. Dr Alexa Bell-Bosk, whose PhD is in transport, is a senior lecturer in the Public Transport Research Group of the Institute of Transport Studies at Monash University. Her research focuses on the changing habits of young people, transport psychology, human factors in public transport and the use of emerging technologies in transport. Along with a colleague, Kelsey Ralph, she has written a paper titled I'm Multimodal, Aren't You? How Egocentric Anchoring Biases Experts' Perceptions of Travel Patterns. It takes up the word heuristic, which is defined as enabling a person to discover or learn something for themselves. It is any approach to problem-solving, learning or discovery. Our perceptions, and therefore our approaches, are critical topics. Dr Del Bosque joins us on the line. Alexa, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. Now, it's important to take an approach of understanding what we initially think in order to say where that might be leading us in our research. 
you were looking at some factors for transport planners, weren't you? Indeed. Uh, we were interested, my colleague and I, in um, a lot of research recently about millennial generation and some assumptions that researchers and practitioners were making about what millennials were like and how they traveled. That was the inspiration for this research because we were wondering if some of those assumptions were because of the personal experience of the people who were interested in the topic. I have a background in psychology and I know that it's, it's very easy to draw from our own personal experiences and our own thoughts and feelings when we try to think about what other people are doing and thinking. Yes, it's almost a mistake we make when we say, I know how you feel, which to many people is, no, you don't. You haven't really come to grips with that, isn't it? And, and, mm -hmm. and so we get a snippet of what the millennials might be thinking and we use that in reinforcement. In fact, I think there's a psychological term for that, isn't there? Uh, there is. Uh, it's, it's got a nice technical term, which is using egocentric anchoring to confirm uh, what we think other people are thinking. So, I mean, let's be fair. It's really hard to know what other people are thinking and feeling and doing. You know, it's a big, wide, complex world out there. So we use lots of heuristics, as you mentioned. There are mental shortcuts to just work out what's going on in the world around us without being crippled with indecision at every turn. Uh, and one common heuristic is, okay, I'm not quite sure what you're thinking or feeling, so I'll start with what I know and then adjust for based on what I think you know. And so quite often it then becomes trigger communication, really, doesn't it? Someone might say, well, I caught the bus and whoosh, in you go, well, buses are this, this, this and this. It's, it's mm -hmm. triggered something in my mind, not necessarily taken up where they might be coming from. It's very common. It's not just transport professionals. You know, we're all human. We all make mistakes. But I believe that transport professionals are not immune to this bias either. You use the word ego, but of course you're not talking about necessarily, although in some cases it's clearly the case, of arrogance, you, really. You're no, just no. talking about where people are quite genuinely coming from. Exactly. Just egocentrism in psychology isn't about Freud or ego or arrogance. It's just about starting with your own perspective, your personal perspective when you're trying to understand the world. So what perspectives did you find transport planners were coming from? Well, at least in our survey, and this was a, it was a transport planners in America, uh, and they were a mix of academics and practitioners. We found that they were more likely than the average American to be multimodal or to not have a car. They're more likely to kind of live in more city areas, less likely to be in regional or rural areas. And uh, especially those who were more multimodal or didn't drive uh, assumed that a larger proportion of Americans were like them. So when they, we asked them, what do you think the average American is traveling? They tended to slightly project just a bit. You know, it's not massive, but they, they did assume that Americans were a bit more like them than was the reality. If you're a transport planner, you're more likely to be working in the inner city, yet the inner city is, as I've talked about a lot, often totally overrated, still very important, but often overrated mm. in its relative size. Indeed. And although this study was conducted in America, I wouldn't be surprised if you would see similar patterns in Australia where transport planners, public transport employees, they tend to live in the more inner city areas. That's their lived reality. If they're taking public transport, it's nice trains or trams. They're less likely to be out in the suburbs where that's just not an option and your only option is to drive. Alexa, I love what you're doing and I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. 
Thank you. And that's Dr. Alexa DeBosk, who is uh, works with the Public Transport Research Group of the Institute of Transport Studies at Monash University, having written some very, very good stuff with a psychology background rather than just a little bit of engineering, which both are important and both have their place. You're listening to Overdrive. I have just been to a conference on shaping Canberra's transport future. Autonomous vehicles were a major issue. Now, planners have a series of theories and ideas about how autonomous vehicles will impact the way we travel. But what do the car companies think? Automobile manufacturers have a clear image of pleasing the customer with the new technology, which is quite understandable, but they also have some ideas about just how autonomous vehicles will operate on the road. Richard Emery is the CEO of Nissan Australia, and he is very optimistic about AV vehicles. We appreciate the time he has given the program. Thanks, David. Now, you have an idea that the technology can be applied very uh, in very uh, clever ways. For example, not just holding people to speed limits, but perhaps being able to pick more speed limits for what people want. Yeah, look, I think uh, obviously everyone, whether it be consumers and, and, and car companies, are excited about the opportunities with uh, more technology uh, and, and obviously driving us towards uh, autonomous or various levels of autonomous drive with, with the vehicles that we, we use on a daily basis. Uh, and certainly the technologies, and, and this is a good example, we've been investing uh, a lot of money in, in autonomous drive and the technologies uh, at the various levels uh, and look, from our perspective, we talk internally around heading towards an environment where you have uh, zero fatalities and zero emissions. So those two factors are key drivers in the technologies that we, we invest in. I think people's perceptions of autonomous drive, or let's call it driverless cars, which some people like to use the term of, is exciting for many people. I think what uh, occasionally is lost is the understanding of what that really does mean in terms of uh, the daily commute or, or the driving environment that we deal with because uh, obviously car companies have got to the point with the technologies that we're all pretty confident that we can deliver cars that do all the things we need them to do to, to fulfil uh, autonomous drive at the various levels. But whether society, whether the, the transport systems, the roads are ready for that level of automation, I think, is the challenge for, for whether it be Australia or any other country around the world. That's a lovely point. Let me take that up in a couple of ways. How do you think it will change people's attitude to the car? Do you think that we will move away clearly from us old, if I may say this, on my own behalf, an old guy who loved driving, to a different attitude altogether? Look, I think that is going to be up to how the car companies and how the technologies are delivered to the consumer. I would say from Nissan's perspective, we see the opportunities for autonomous drive technologies as being tools to allow people to enjoy and get more out of their driving experience than simply turning it into a, a white box that is used for commuter uh, distances. And I think there'll be different directions from various car companies and various government instrumentalities about how it's adopted. I think from Nissan's perspective, uh, I kind of half agree with you, and I think we agree with you, is that we want to use these technologies to allow your driving experience with your, your Nissan product to be more exciting and to some extent safer and, of course, easier rather than it taking complete driving capacity away from the, from the owner. There'll be other 
markets and there'll be cities and there'll be governments who will see autonomous drive as the opportunity to just have a four-wheeled product deliver you from A to B. That's certainly not Nissan's attitude. Nissan's attitude is we can use all of these technologies and, and autonomous drive elements to assist your driving experience and to make your driving experience more exciting. You might compartmentalise that more then, that when the car's in the city, then it, it goes on its own, but you might go out and enjoy it in other locations, be it a country drive or perhaps a club day on a race circuit. Is that the sort of variation? That's absolutely true. That in, There'll be environments when you're driving your car that you just want to let the car do the mundane things you want to call that, like crawling through the city CBD traffic or on a set piece of freeway. You might say, well, here's the opportunity for me to allow the car to take control of the circumstances and therefore I can enjoy the drive more than stopping and going and doing all those sorts of things. But then you might want the, the opportunity outside of that in other environments where you want to enjoy your drive and you want to take more control. So I think, I think from our perspective, that's the direction that Nissan uh, takes, and that is we want to use these technologies to improve your enjoyment and to imp improve your capacity to navigate traffic or whatever else in a comfortable way. And that's Richard Emery from the CEO of Nissan Australia talking about autonomous vehicles and where we might head in the future. This is Overdrive across Australia. Sir Roger Moore, the actor, is dead. A number of his shows, particularly the TV series, stick in my mind because of the character, the passion and the feeling demonstrated by the cars. Now, Sean Connery was a James Bond. He had an Aston because it was cool, sophisticated and elegant. Piers Brosnan had some BMWs because he was commercially contracted to, pure product placement. But Roger Moore had a series of expensive to wacky cars that drew attention away from his bad acting. Let's talk about that and other quirky news stories. On the line is Errol Smith. Errol, am I right about Roger Moore? Absolutely. Well, he, he was the one that took the James Bond franchise into sort of silly territory, didn't he? Yeah. I mean, the, sort of the, the, the penultimate example of that was Moonraker, where he, they basically tried to make a James Bond meets Star Wars. Oh, OK. I, I didn't see them. It was all set in space with, uh, you know, space shuttles and, and there was a battle inside a space station with, with Jaws. Oh, OK. So it was all very, all very silly. Did put me off completely a little later, two ones after Moonraker, and I only know these things because I've got a list in front of me, uh, was Octopussy. I just thought that was just such a crass. That's the sort of title that would make Trump blush. Yes. I don't know if that's possible. No, maybe not that far. <laughs> but going back, the television series, The Saint, probably a little before your time, where he had the Volvo P1800 with the number plates ST1. I just thought that was wonderful. Did you ever see it? Uh, no, David, it's a bit, a bit before my time, I think. Okay, that's the little Volvo sports car, and he had that rather than an E-Type Jaguar. An E-Type Jaguar would have been perfect British, you know, it was on the market. Uh, they asked Jaguar for a free one, and Jaguar said, we're selling everything we can. Why would we need to give you a free one? 
but wouldn't it have given a lasting impression forever if they had have picked that? It would have. I think they they missed the whole product placement thing, which which actually really started with uh, with James Bond because the uh, the DB five was kind of you yes. know not a big deal uh, until it became the James Bond car. And of course, you could say the same thing about the uh, the Lotus Esprit S one, which you um, yes, uh, of course, becomes a submarine. Where isn't that getting silly though? See, I mean, the very first James Bond one from uh, uh, which, of course, was Sean Connery, which was Live and Let Die. No, no, sorry, that's Roger Moore. I can't remember which one was which one. Yeah, was well, Doctor doc, 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 No. Doc, 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 no. Doctor No was the, the first film which right. which had the DB5 in it. No, no, it's it actually had the Sunbeam in it, and then the next one from Russia with Love had a Bentley Mark IV, and then the Aston came in in the third one, which was Goldfinger and then Thunderball. But of course, as you're quite right, Errol, hasn't it made the name Aston Martin? Yeah, well, the, the, the first thing you think of when you hear the name Aston Martin is, is James Bond. He also, or Sean Connery, also got into a Toyota 2000 GT, which I thought was a lovely-looking little car, but clearly it didn't do him any good, I'm afraid. The Spy Who Loved Me is the one that's, um, that's probably most most famous for, for Roger Moore and the Lotus. That's that's the uh, the one where it becomes a submarine. That's the Lotus Esprit S one. Yes. And um, a little bit later, you had a Lotus Esprit Turbo in for your eyes only. But that that one just got blown up by its own self destruct system. Yes. Well, the other thing is for your eyes only. Also, of course, had far more significantly the Citroen two CV. Of course. Yes. Yes. That that classic car chase scene. And it rolls over, I think, on its side. It also had a little um, barjage, um, sort of like a rickshaw, motorised rickshaw sort of thing, only with an enclosed body. That was part of it as well. Oh, no, that was in Octopussy, I think. Yeah, Octopussy. Again, I'm not an expert on this. I'm tending to read research rather than necessarily... Mm. At least with, um, with most of those films, the Roger Moore films, they stuck with the British cars. Whereas we went to, uh, when you had Pierce Brosnan, we had the uh, BMWs, which seems a little implausible to me for a British spy agency. Don't talk about the war, David. <laughs> As I say, that was just pure product placement, wasn't it? Roger Moore has been a, has been a, a source of fun, I guess. He was a much more, more light-hearted James Bond than, than uh, Connery was. Do you remember the television program The Persuaders? I think that one's before my time too, David. Right. This is where Roger Moore and, um, oh, what's his name? Oh, it'll come to me. The American little bloke. Uh, Roger, they were both crims and they uh, were caught out having a big fight. They weren't crims. They were they were man about town, right? And so they had a big fight and the judge said you can either do good or go to jail. And so they right. bandied together to catch the baddies. Tony Curtis. Tony Curtis, yeah. Tony Curtis. Yeah, Tony, Tony Curtis and Roger Moore were the persuaders in the uh, in the seventies. Roger had a Aston Martin DBS, which, to my mind, had gone the way of Mustangs. Do you remember the first Mustang, a lithe pony, and then became a fat pig? I think the first mm. Aston Martin, well, certainly the DB5, became then this rather ugly, square, bulldogish sort of 
sports car with a big square nose on it. And, of course, Tony Curtis had the absolutely beautiful Ferrari Dino 246 GT. A lovely car. One one of the all-time prettiest cars, I, I believe, that's around. And uh, to some degree, it, it, it oozed style, whereas Roger Moore, with his Aston Martin, oozed just a bit of wealth, I suppose. Yes, bulk, but when they were big and bulky. So, as I say, I think uh, what really happened with Roger Moore was that uh, he had to have wacky cars to try and draw attention to the movie because, really, uh, the the plots and the acting and the smarminess of it all just uh, never made it worthwhile. Yeah, so he, he had a long run, a long run though, David, and, uh, he, and he was... Um uh, well into his fifties when he did the old, the, the last in the uh, in in eighty five. So uh, he hung in there when it was one of the older bonds. But he wasn't a be- he, he wasn't bearish, David, was he? So this is the story of a Virginia homeowner who got a big surprise when they woke up to the fact that their car was honking away. The horn was going. They went outside and found a two hundred pound bear cub locked in the vehicle. And it got inside at about 5 a.m. in the morning looking for food. Now, I've got to say, if you have a bear cub in your car and it's honking the horn, uh, that's road rage you'd be prepared to let go, wouldn't you? (laughs) Yes, I think so. (laughs) I don't mind it using the horn and blowing the horn. He can do that as long as he also uses the blinkers. Yes, well, that's, that's very important, David. You have to indicate I was talking to a mate of mine who said that he had a a friend or more particularly an acquaintance who had been uh, teaching people advanced driving for 20 years or something. And he, of course, was highly opinionated and everything was all about how you have to be, you know, be able to control a skid if you're going to be safe on the road. My friend travelled in the car with him on quite a number of occasions. He never once used the blinkers, the indicators. So... All the talk about road safety, one wonders what that needs. Anyway, so you've got a bear in a car. Are we going to see cars that will do everything for all your needs? And so will they recognise that there's a bear inside? How, how do you think that they might cope for that? This sounds like a play school intro, David. There's, there's a bear in there. <laughs> come inside. <laughs> yes, come inside. But uh, I think, David, really what this story boils down to is that you shouldn't leave food in your car. Yeah. All right, Errol, always good to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time, and we'll see you next week. No worries, David. And that was Errol Smith, and we were talking some unusual stories and some moral stories to do with transport and motoring. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Errol Smith, Dr Alexa Del Bosque, Richard Amory, Brian Smith, David Campbell and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can listen to longer segments of each of the features by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.